Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Les Bird is a former Marine police officer. When he arrived in Hong Kong in 1976, at the age of 22, to take up his new career, he had been trained to catch criminals, but his job over the next 10 years would take a different turn. With the end of the Vietnam War in 1975, Hong Kong saw a massive influx of Vietnamese refugees coming in on boats, particularly to Hong Kong's southern border around Tai o. Les Bird was one of the officers tasked with meeting those boats and processing the refugees. Les has written his memoirs, which will be out in bookshops soon, and I'll be returning to chat with him in Tayo about other aspects of his career. His book is called A Small Band of Men, An Englishman's Adventures in the Hong Kong Marine Police. I first decided to write the book about three years ago. Throughout my career in the Marine Police, I carried a camera in my kit bag, and at times, when it was convenient, I'd, I'd snap off a few pictures of what we were doing, the work. And I put these photographs in a box and didn't really look at them for a while, for a few years. But on finding that I had three or four hundred of them, I put them all in chronological order and realized I had a bit of a story here spanning 21 years, from the early years of the 1970s when I first came here to Hong Kong, all the way up to 97, just before the handover, which is when I left. So I've got a copy in front of me of your book, Les, A Small Band of Men, An Englishman's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police. Now this is going to be published a little later on, so I look forward to returning to talk with you about the book in its entirety. But what we're going to look at today is that for a number of years, your work in the Marine Police involved the influx of tens of thousands of Vietnamese refugees. So can you tell me about when you first, as a young man in the Marine Police, when that first started becoming an issue, and where were you based? Yeah, it actually started coincidentally. I arrived in Hong Kong, as you say, as a, a young, fresh 22-year-old, and in 1976, which is the year after the end of the war in Vietnam, and coincided with the first refugees arriving in Hong Kong. So. Basically, I was here right at the start, from 76 onwards, and I was a frontline officer on the Marine Police launches for the next 10-plus years. And we were deployed to the southern boundary to intercept these boatloads of refugees as they came in. With the southern boundary, in what sort of areas are we talking, Tayo? Yeah, we're talking the southwest of Hong Kong. If you picture a map, it's on the bottom left-hand corner. So the Vietnamese refugees would be coming from that direction, which is where Vietnam is. So it would be about 800 kilometers, I think. And they would arrive on the southwestern point corner of the what was then the colony boundary. And that would be South Lantau, South Cheung Chau, South Lama. That area, if you draw a line, a straight line across uh, east to west, they would arrive along there 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 10 years in various different types of modes of transport. Can you remember seeing your first one? Yeah, I can. You don't really know what to expect. I think the first thing that struck me was the condition of them. They were in extremely poor condition. Malnutrition, dehydration, a lot. And it was the fact that a lot of them were very, very young, uh, young families, which meant that probably a third of the people on board were probably under the age of five years old. There was a lot of concerns with health and in those days, in those early days, we just weren't equipped with the equipment or the food or whatever they needed or the medical supplies. So it, it was a, a very sharp learning curve in that first year. 
So what would happen? So you you go out of Tayo, you've got a launch of how, how many sort of seven crew or yeah, there'd be in those days we sent out as many vessels as we could. We, we actually sort of made a line across the southern boundary because there were so many small boats coming in. It wasn't just marine police too. Any government vessel that wasn't being used, we would put marine policemen on. So there were all sorts of uh, mishmash of government vessels running a line across the southern boundary. So when you say mishmash, what, yachts or...? Uh, no, they were all metal hull tugboats, there was immigration department vessels, there was an agriculture and fisheries vessel manned by marine police. But on the major launches, we'd have a crew of around about 15, 15 officers, um, and they would have to be there and working 24 hours, seven days a week. There was no break, there was no let-up. So this starts in 1976, so as you say, mm. after the end of the very protracted mm. Vietnam War. So who's coming in? Is it southern Vietnamese, northern Vietnamese? Yeah, there were, there were several phases over the first ten years. Initially, they were all southern Vietnamese, predominantly ethnic Chinese. A lot of them spoke Cantonese, which was fortunate for us. So there was a little bit of a, an opportunity to get communications working there. But as it went on, the refugee issue changed in that other people in Vietnam sensing the fact that they actually didn't like living there and realizing that Hong Kong was now a port of first asylum, they would take advantage of that and joined in. So through the early 80s, a lot of people who were coming in weren't actually refugees, uh, classified as ec economic migrants. And the problem for Hong Kong was third countries in the West who were taking the refugees after they'd arrived in Hong Kong started to become more selective in who they would take and they were telling the Hong Kong government we're not going to take people who are not genuine refugees but we'd been taking everybody in because we can't turn anyone away we wouldn't do that unlike certain other Southeast Asian countries who were pushing their boats back out to sea we couldn't do that we had to take everyone in and so Hong Kong was left with a problem in the mid 80s the fact that we'd taken everyone in and now other countries were refusing to take them and that's when the camp started to get very, very full in Hong Kong. So back to the situation at sea, so the idea of putting not only the Hong Kong Marine Police vessels out there but a variety of vessels from government departments, the idea was to be able to process people as they were coming in to make sure that people weren't just arriving and just getting off on shore. Yeah, we became very, very quickly more welfare officers than, than police officers. There was health care, there was identification issues. Hardly anyone had any form of identification. They arrived in what they were standing up in, basically. So we had to convey all of these people from the southern boundary into central Hong Kong. The government initially started to use the government dockyard, the facilities at the government dockyard, to try and house these people whilst they processed them and tried to find out who they were. But once the dockyard got full, they had to make another arrangement and they took out some barges to Western Quarantine Anchorage and set up medical teams and immigration teams out there. So our job was initially processing the refugees, giving them what aid we could, and then escorting the boat or the refugees to 
the Western Quarantine Anchorage where they were further processed. And within a matter of months, this became Boat City, and there were three, 4,000 refugees sitting on their boats there, gathered around these barges, whilst the people in the middle, the medical staff, the immigration, were trying to process them, and they were just sitting and waiting. And that, that lasted for several years. So it was quite an emotional thing, because initially they would be elated. When, when you intercepted them, they saw authority, uh, Hong Kong authority, which is what they wanted. They saw themselves as being rescued. We would then have to take them to this place where they were going to be processed, and they're absolutely horrified because they realized that, that they were now at the back of the queue, and maybe there's 5,000 other refugees already here, and they were going to spend another maybe few weeks sitting on their boats waiting for some kind of assistance. Yeah, a difficult situation for you to be in, also with the Marine Police. I mean, you know, I don't know when both counselling for the refugees kind of gets set up, but also counselling for the men who, largely men, was it, or was there also Marine Police women who were involved? Yeah, initially it was just men, but very, very soon we realised that we needed women police officers on board to help with this because our duty had changed drastically. We were no longer patrolling the waters of Hong Kong fighting crime. We were now the reception committee for Vietnamese refugees, and, and that was our job. So, yeah, female officers were deployed to the launches. It's fascinating seeing some of these photographs and kudos to you for carrying that camera because that really does provide us with great historic references over that time. You would see these boats and uh, you know some traditional junks coming in, absolutely crowded with, with people on board and uh, also one that you've got of actually uh, junk coming in on a beach is could have been done in any uh, it's, it's uh, quite an amazing photograph because it really could have been done in any era there's nothing modern uh, in that photograph I mean for me from a sort of just looking at the boats it's lovely in some ways to see these these old junks but how seaworthy would they have been for that 800 kilometer journey uh, uh, well first of all we don't know how many didn't make it there's no, there's no record. There was no record in Vietnam when they left. A lot of these people would arrange the boat themselves or some snakehead would, would arrange it for them and for payment and off they would go. There's no written record. And if they sank and didn't make it, that's it. We don't know. The boats that actually arrived were in terrible condition. Many of them sank whilst they were actually being processed. We literally had to pick people off and, and sit them on the deck of the police launch and there went their boat below it sank and one of the photographs I've shown you is a beach on one of the Sokos islands and it's it's covered in wrecks of boats and there's people in rags wandering around up, up along the beach and as you say this could be a picture from the 18th century yeah the, the, the boats were in awful condition um, many of them were not sea boats a lot of them were ri actually river boats with what's called a flat keel which means it's a flat it's a flat bottom boat which in rough weather is terribly unstable. Now, how many of those didn't make it, I don't know, but the refugees seem to find these flat-keeled riverboats and try to come to Hong Kong on those, and there's no way that I would ever try and do that journey on, on a boat like that. So, yeah, they were, they were in pretty awful condition, the boats themselves, when they arrived. So you've got this variety of boats then when you're beating them of course those that are sinking in front of you you would need to retrieve the people off them and in a situation where a boat was still seaworthy would you then bring it into Tayo? what was the process yeah no we yes yes we would we would salvage anything we could and and bring it into the western quarantine anchorage which was located near stonecutters island in, in victoria harbor so if if it was seaworthy they would remain on board and we would escort them if their engine was up to it. 
If not, we would take them on board our own marine police launch and try and tow it if it was looked as though it was going to sink. And some of them did sink, so there's nothing we could do about those, I'm afraid. Yeah, so we were welfare officers that we escorted them to the quarantine anchorage where, unfortunately, that's where they saw where their future, where their fate was. And that's when we had to hand them over to the medical and immigration people. So I'm talking to Les Bird, who's the author of A Small Band of Men, An Englishman's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police. So this is Les Bird's memoirs of being in the Hong Kong Marine Police, where he starts in 1976 at the age of 22. And uh, a number of years were involved, and that's what we're talking about today with his work, with the Vietnamese refugees coming in at the end of the Vietnam War in 1975. And we'll be returning to some of Les Bird's uh, other adventures in the Marine Police at a later date. But today, it's interesting, Les, to be able to talk to somebody who was involved in meeting these vessels. Because I've heard, I mean, I remember seeing it at a museum here, and it wasn't even a boat, it was a circular thing. Coracle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a coracle, is it? I believe it is, yeah. yeah. It's made of raffia, strips of raffia, and tied together. And we did actually find people on rafts, not boats. There, there were structures that they'd, they'd built themselves, and how they'd managed to get across the South China Sea on those, I have no idea. But, yeah, I've seen that. Whether he made it the whole way across, I doubt it. it Maybe he came on another boat and decided to... Uh, branch off on his own before he got to Hong Kong, didn't want to be associated with wh whoever he was with on that boat. Yeah, but they, they came in all sorts of different things. I mean, there was a, an era which I've referred to in my book as the big ship era, which is when the people smuggling scam started in Vietnam. That was in 1979, when the authorities in Vietnam realized that that Hong Kong was going to take all these refugees, so they arranged freighters. They bought their own freighters. They filled them with refugees, taking to between eight and ten tails of gold per head. So the middle-class Vietnamese that wanted to leave could, could then go and pay for a passage to the free world. And they would cram two, three thousand people on these small freighters. They would hire a crew a bogus crew, normally foreign crew, they were, I think the first two were Taiwanese crews, who would be paid, and then the ships would sail to Hong Kong, and on the way, the first one, people might remember the, the names of these, the first one was called the Huai Fong, uh, it had three and a half thousand refugees on board. The master was Taiwanese, and on his way over from Vietnam, he sent a message to the Marine Department here in Hong Kong saying he'd rescued boatloads of poor people uh, who were about to drown and he got thousands of them on his ship and he was requesting passage to come into Hong Kong and hand them over to the Hong Kong authorities. But a quick check from the Marine Department here in Hong Kong found that it was completely bogus. The ship had left Bangkok with one passenger. It had gone to Vung Tao. Vung Tao is a town just outside Ho Chi Minh. Uh, the people smuggling racket was organized. So the Huai Fong was coming into to Hong Kong and the Marine Department said, no, we don't believe your story. Your next port of call legitimately is Kaohsiung. You're to not come into Hong Kong, you're to carry on. But he still came, and we went out on the police launches and the Royal Navy too, and stopped him coming into Hong Kong. That presented Hong Kong with a problem. There were a boatload of three and a half thousand refugees. We knew it was people smuggling, and the problem then was what to do about it. Do we take them in? and set a precedence, in which case there'll be more, or, or what? But the conditions on board are absolutely awful. We put a team of officers on board, 
we sent medical, food, water to take care of these guys, but conditions were absolutely awful and honestly the, the Hong Kong government had no choice. They eventually let them in. So when you say the conditions were awful, can you describe some of those? Yeah, if you can imagine a freighter, it, it's built for cargo. You have a flat deck and then you have below deck you have a massive cargo hold, the same size as the upper deck. It's closed, there's no air. There's no air, there's no sanitation, there's no toilet facilities, there's no bathrooms, there's no water, there's no fresh water. So people had to live in that hold for the duration, which could be probably about a couple of weeks. And if you've got people crammed in to an area that would normally take about, say, 20 people, you've got hundreds of people sort of squashed in there. It wasn't very pleasant. And then you have the ones up on deck who've been exposed to the heat and the weather. And these people had nothing. They only had the shirt on their back, basically. So they were given whatever the crew felt they could spare. Uh, they, were, they were pretty, pretty in awful condition when they arrived. So they would have been malnourished? The stench must have been awful. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, the stench was terrible. There was no sanitary conditions at all on the ship. I think there was one toilet for the crew, and that was it. So, yeah, it was awful. And the government eventually, you know, caved in in terms of the humanitarian issues and, and took them in. And, and you'd have also had risks of, what, cholera, all sorts? Yeah, there was cholera. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a, an outbreak of cholera on several occasions here. It was that degree of, of sanitation. And also, I mean, within the Marine Police, jobs change again, because, as you said, it's, it's morphed from yeah. being, you know, checking borders, etc., the usual for crime, the usual um, role of a Marine Police officer. You're now becoming these welfare officers as these refugees come in. But uh, also, it wasn't just a matter of bringing them into the Western quarantine anchorage or for processing, but some of the Marine Police would now go on and temporarily live on board. Yeah, with the Huaifong and the second ship that came in was called the Skyluck. That followed a month or so after the Huaifong and that made it actually into Hong Kong waters. It didn't, like the first one, send a radio message. Their crew were quite smart, well, smarter. They didn't send a radio message. They tried to come into Hong Kong and offload their cargo of refugees, two and a half thousand of them, first up, and then try and escape. But that didn't work. We intercepted the ship off Lama Island. It was forced to drop anchor and wait whilst, again, our government decided what they were going to do with the two and a half thousand. We had to provide two police launches that went alongside, which acted really as like a, a police post, if you like, where we, could, where we could work from. And the duty of those officers would be to live on board that police launch and on board the Skyluck. So you were welfare officers, you would go on board the Skyluck and spend half your day there. The Skyluck, what sort of boat was it? Again, very similar to the one I described, it's very similar to the Huaifong. Again, it was a freighter, not built for passengers, not built for people, with large cargo holds, and which is where the refugees were living, sort of underground. It was complete darkness down there, and as I say, no sanitary, no, nothing like that, um, no fresh water. So. Our day would be to provide you know, provisions, medical assistance, to go on every day and find out what they needed to exist from day to day. But at the same time, of course, these people were getting more and more agitated and needing further help. They, they didn't know what was going on. They were asking the Hong Kong government for, for help, and it took time. It took time to sort out. Now, when you were involved in this processing, I mean, obviously there's the 
just the sheer admin administrative side of it but uh, speaking Cantonese did you find that people were sharing their stories with you of what had gone on and how they'd got on the boats? The first refugees to arrive in in the 70s spoke there were a lot of ethnic Chinese from South Vietnam and a lot of them were Cantonese speakers so yeah we could communicate with those guys and a few stories did get shared you're absolutely right but as it as it went on and they got mixed in with a lot of Vietnamese, that wasn't possible. So yeah, they, we, we got stories of the reasons why they were leaving, stories of persecution uh, in their own country uh, at the end of the war, um, siding with the South Vietnamese army. Uh, we had a lot of um, veterans, uh, what you call them veterans, but they, they were in their 20s. A lot of the men were, were former soldiers, uh, and they would talk about uh, some of them would talk about the war quite reluctantly though. So in, in terms of the predominant refugees particularly in the initial years would have been from South Vietnam? Yes, yes. So you've uh, got the North Vietnam winning as, as such? Yeah, well as we know um, North, North Vietnam won, won the war. South Vietnamese were predominantly either ethnic Chinese or, or Vietnamese but a lot spoke um, Cantonese. Yeah. Now, back in the mid-1970s, tell me on the, on the launches, I mean, you'd have had ra radar. You wouldn't have had GPS, but you'd have had radar. Yeah, radar, yeah. So at night, you could see them coming. Because um, I presume more tried to get in at night. Well, they, they weren't actually trying to evade arrest. Right. They, they, they're actually waving to you as they came in. <laughs> Hooray, we're being rescued. Right. Uh, they were really, really pleased to see us. This wasn't like an illegal immigration um, scenario where yeah, people, course, tried, yeah. tried, people tried to avoid arrest. Uh, no, uh, uh, but what we had to do was st stop them landing because if there were 30 boatloads coming in all at the same time and we only had 10 launches, it was a case of trying to catch them all and not let them land and not let them go walking into town. Otherwise, we'd be in trouble. Why aren't you doing your job? Why aren't you stopping these guys? Uh, but sometimes they did. They, they landed and they went wandering off uh, and then we'd have a problem of finding them. But they weren't deliberately running away. They were just glad to, I think, glad to be off their boats. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah, what a harrowing, uh, you know, and as I say, it's just compounded. Yeah, you'd have had people who'd already had the trauma of the war or the, the post-war experience, plus then the journey. Um, and how long, I mean, from a, if you've got, like, say, let's take the two big freighters that you were describing, I mean, 800 kilometres, how long does that take? I think the trip, the trip itself probably took probably about 10 days. Although they were freighters, they were in terribly poor condition. They, they'd been bought by people who just wanted to get into the people smuggling business. So they, they, they bought freighters who, who were at the end of their life. So the engines were breaking down. Um, one, of them, one of them put into a Chinese port to, to get engine repairs on the way over. Um, and they had to pay in gold to get that, and the refugees had to pay for that. That was that. That's an interesting ship. That was the third and last ship. That was called the Sen On. And what year was that? That was also in 1979. The, these three big ships came in, uh, one after the other, uh, at one or two months in a row, before we actually could stop it. But the Sen On came in, and their method was even smarter than the other two what the crew did there, the, the people smuggling crew, they dropped anchor off Macau, they got into a small boat and they disappeared with their gold 
and they told the refugees that you can see that big island over there, that's Lanto Island, that's Hong Kong, you steer the ship that way and you'll be fine. And that's what they did. They steered the Senon across the Pearl River estuary to Fanlao Point. There was a police launch there. Police launch tried to stop it. They didn't know how to stop the ship. So they carried on being chased now by the police launcher who realized what it was. And the only way they could stop it was they saw on their left-hand side a beach called Loke One. Loke One is about, I think it's the first beach on Lantau Island from the, coming from the west. They turned the, the ship and then they ran it straight up the beach. So the, the Senon grounded on Loke One. The refugees realizing that if they actually made land, they wouldn't have to go through the same ordeal as those on the Skylock and the Huifong. So they all jumped into the sea and they all ran up onto the beach and they all just sat there. So there were 1,400 Vietnamese sitting on the beach. <laughs> so why would it, if they touched land, would that be any different? Well, they were right, actually. Uh, their theory was that if they were off the boat, we weren't going to put them back on it. They were taken off. They were, they were then taken to the government dockyard. Uh, they were processed. They went into... I, I do actually f know about the... I did follow the, 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 this particular case. They were transferred to the Kai Tak camp, which was an open camp at the time, and they were all taken by Can Canada. They're all now living in Canada, those 1,400 people. Now the Senon, so this is the third, as you say, of yeah. these, these ships in yeah. uh, where, where it's become much more of a kind of professional uh, people smuggling as opposed to just people coming in, uh, in on rickety boats, although you'd have still had that element, of course. But uh, with the, now with the first two crews, the Weifong, the, the first boat, now that crew got, it got arrested, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, and the second crew too, of the Skylark. The master and crew of the Huifong got a total of 50 years in prison, uh, with the master getting nine years. Um, so yeah, they, they, I mean, they were guilty of people smuggling, uh, plus another, many other offences. Um, and what happened with the Senon guys? Did they get away? They did. They've mm -hmm. never, never been caught. They, they made it to Macau and they disappeared. So the first two crews were arrested in Hong Kong and served time in prison and the crew of the third, the third ship, they escaped, yeah. Have you been to Vietnam? Many times, yes. First time I went there was the late 1980s and I was absolutely amazed how many people spoke Cantonese. In fact, everybody, I, uh, sorry, I, this was in Ho Chi Minh, in Saigon. They still call it Saigon. And uh, yeah, it was, I, I was surprised I could actually get by in my expat Cantonese. <laughs> and did it, you know, going to Vietnam, I mean, were you going there on holiday? Um, and, uh, and also the fact that you had been involved for so long, more than a decade in meeting and processing and seeing these people coming in on these rickety boats. Did that also have any kind of emotional impact? Yeah, of course. I started to go to Vietnam before the end of the influx stopped because I wanted to see the place for myself. I was, I'd been involved for 10 years on the receiving end. I wanted to see where these people were coming from. Um, it was a curiosity. It wasn't really a holiday. I couldn't call it a holiday. Uh, but I got to meet, I got to meet um, people who'd attempted to come to Hong Kong and, uh, and hadn't made it. Uh, I met uh, a, a man who's probably in his six, 50s or 60s, who was a child, uh, whose family were, had attempted, they'd paid for a passage to Hong Kong. Um, they got separated at the dock 
in Vungtau, which is where they were loaded onto ships. Um, it was a very. He was telling me it was a very very rough night, the, the 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 first night at sea, and their boat, their captain decided to turn round. He couldn't make it, so they turned round. The other boat, where his father and his sister were, were never seen again. They must have sunk. Um, so it was quite a traumatic um, story he was telling me. Um, and he, he, him and his mother uh, didn't make a, another attempt to come to Hong Kong. So he, he was a taxi driver in, in Ho Chi Minh. Um, he was telling me this story, yeah. It's quite, quite moving, actually. My thanks to Les Bird talking there on his experiences as a Marine police officer with the tens of thousands of Vietnamese refugees who sought sanctuary in Hong Kong in the years following the Vietnam War. Les Bird is the author of A Small Band of Men, an Englishman's adventures in the Hong Kong Marine Police. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>